Today we're going to be looking at what we could almost call Christianity 101. This may be the most important passage in the entire New Testament, and I'm going to explain why in just a few minutes. We're going to talk today about God's gift to us. So to prepare us for that, I saw an advertisement for some workout material several months ago that said, be younger next year than you are right now. And I thought, you know, I like the gimmick. And if you're 18 or 19 or 23, that's probably pretty good. But once you get past 25, physically, that line has limited possibilities. You can be in better shape, you can be thinner, you can be leaner and meaner a year from now, but after that, it's just going to be downhill from there. But spiritually, spiritually, that has unlimited possibilities. In fact, that's true. In fact, that's how we were designed. That's what we're aiming for this year. That by this time next year, we will be more deeply connected to God. Our influence and our impact will be wider on the people around us, more people and more impactful on the people that are near to us. We want to see God take us somewhere new. And for those of you who are exploring the spiritual life, or for those of you who are just kind of trying to figure out what a connection to God means, you've stumbled into Gateway, that's been my prayer for you, that you would join us this year and that you would find yourself somewhere new a year from now, somewhere deeper in your connection with God, and that the impact of your life literally would be wider. For those of us who have been around this for a while, you've had a connection with God for a long time, my prayer for us is that God would increase our expectation level. You know how for many of us, if you've been around this for a number of years, sometimes you get to the place where your best spiritual stories are from 10 years ago or from 15 years ago. And it is my prayer that this year will be a year when we have spiritual stories, when our stories from this year will be the best of our lives, that God will take us deeper and wider. I think I'm, I'm a little tired of having my stories be old. Let's have them be fresh. One of the primary tools for us in doing this this year is going to be the Bible. It always is. For all of you who are willing to join, it, it will be our goal this year to read through the entire New Testament, and we'll take a year doing it. We began this week, and if you're just getting started or if you would like to get started with us, you can pick up one of the devotional guides outside, and we're reading through the English Standard Version, but it doesn't matter what version you read through with us. We're going to try to read through the entire New Testament this year, and about once a month, I'm going to take a week and do Facebook Lives in the morning at various times so I can catch different ones of you who have different work schedules because we're just trying all kinds of things to help and to encourage us to stay with this. Because this is the kind of thing that for some of you who just signed up for this, you're like me and you like the fresh new notebook the first day of school and you're all excited. And by day seven, you're no longer taking notes. And by the end of the semester, the only notes you had were, were from the first week. Well, we want to stay in the game longer and better this year as we're reading through the New Testament. So we've created some various things to help you in that process. Aaron's devotional guide will be one of those things. Let me offer up some kind of introductory remarks, if I can. A couple of these will be on the screen, but this first one isn't. Uh, here's something you need to know in advance. 
this reading through the Bible, reading through the New Testament in a year, this is not a quick fix. You're not going to wake up tomorrow morning and open your Bible and read the passage and, oh, oh my gosh, everything is new. It doesn't happen like that. It's more like a good diet. It's more like eating well. If you decide that you're going to eat well and you wake up tomorrow and you have a great salad and a side of carrots, you don't suddenly lose 30 pounds and feel better. I wish it was that easy, but it is not. But over time, if you stay with it, you really do feel better and you lose weight and look better. It's the same with our spiritual discipline. The second thing then, speaking of that, is it takes discipline. It takes commitment. I'll get to that in a second. So we're going to create as many helps as we can like what Aaron is doing for us. All right, first, let's define the growth process. We're talking about a growth process. Let's define it. One good way of looking at faith is faith is entrusting all that we know of ourselves to all that we know of God. I'm going to say that again. Faith is entrusting all that we know of ourselves to all that we know of God. And that has the growth process buried in it because you and I are constantly learning more about ourselves. And we take the more that we know of ourselves and we deposit it, we entrust it into the hands of the God that we are learning more and more about. So as I said a second ago, the second thing I want you to know about this from the very beginning is this will take commitment. You have to invest. You have to step in. You have to say yes. A couple of weeks ago, somebody here at Gateway sent me an email, and it had a commercial attached to it. And they said, this commercial reminds me of some of what you've been talking about. This is just a commercial for an investment company. You may have seen it on television. But I want you to check out this commercial because it is exactly this message. So here's a commercial for, I think, American Century Investments. Watch this. The sun is low, I'm letting go of the pieces that I found. I'll pick them back up tomorrow and have another go around. I built it up. Broke it down, it's buried in the ground. Let's see if something grows there. The flowers will be your crown. And on the longest of the night, when we see that instant light, you know we can pick it back up tomorrow. Have another go around. American Century Investments. We're more invested in you. When you're more invested, you do more. Listen to this. This is, statement is attributed, I believe, to St. Augustine. Without God, I can't. Without me, God won't. So if we're going to grow deeper and wider this year, it will take an investment from us. We'll have to be invested. We'll have to commit. We'll have to step in. We talked about this a little bit last week when we were talking about giving. Jesus used the analogy, remember, a farming analogy. He says, if you sow a lot, you stand a chance of reaping a lot. If you sow sparingly, if you're stingy with what you sow, you're going to be stingy in what you reap. The more in you are, the more committed you are, the more you stand to reap. It's also true that we reap what we sow. So if you sow apple seed in your backyard, you stand zero chance of reaping avocados a few months later. So this year, you and I need to be about the business of sowing, stepping in, committing to the things of the Spirit. 
so that God can grow us deeper and wider. And to start that this morning, we want to look at one of the passages that we read this week, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And I want us to go old school, and let's stand out of reverence for God's Word as I read this. We're going to pick apart verse 16, phrase by phrase, and then when we get to verse 17, we're going to pause And we're going to back up and take the big bird's eye view, and we're going to look at why this might be the most important passage in the entire New Testament. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And now I want you to saddle up and read this next verse with me. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You may be seated. All right, let's walk through verse 16. First, the gospel. When Paul uses that word gospel, it literally means good news. And this is the story of Jesus, the story of God squeezing himself into human skin and coming to the planet Earth and loving and teaching and and living this great life. And then we killed him. And three days later, he was resurrected from the dead and we began to realize Wow, that was in fulfillment of all kinds of stuff in the Old Testament. This is exactly what God designed, and he did it for us. Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel. Now, this is, of course, an understatement. Paul had given his whole life to the story of Jesus. He was certainly not ashamed of it. But you need to know there was cause to be ashamed. Even in Paul's day, just as there is today, already by the time Paul wrote this letter, Jews were ridiculing and disdaining what they saw as this fringe sect Because they kept repeating the story of the rising of Jesus of Nazareth. Already, Jewish authorities were more than irritated. They wanted to squash the movement. In some cases, they were trying to kill Christians. And increasingly, these early Christians were becoming an irritant to the Romans as well. Persecutions had not started yet, but you could sense it coming. There was reason to be quiet about one's faith in Jesus, but Paul was not. Decidedly so. He was not ashamed of the gospel. And why? Well, he says it's because in it, in the story of Jesus, he saw the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Think about that. Paul is saying here that God's power is in this story and in the aftermath of this story and in the effects of this story. I'm going to say that again. God's power is in this story and in the aftermath of this story and in the effects of this story. Now, when he uses the word salvation in this verse, he's referring to that bone-rattling, life-changing connection to God that has happened to us because of what Jesus Christ has done. More about that in a minute. Finally, he tells us that this great salvation is available to everyone, not just observant Jews. Wow. So here's the thing. Taken together with verse 17, we could almost say a couple of epic things about this. We could say this is really, at a high level, a summary of Christianity 101. We can also make an argument that this is the most important passage in the entire New Testament. Why do I say either of those things? Let's get to verse 17. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Well, this passage is perhaps the most important passage in the entire New Testament, first of all, because of theology. It begins to lay out the argument for what Paul is going to say throughout the rest of the letter. 
to the Romans. But it's also profoundly significant because of its historical significance. So I've had several email exchanges over the last few weeks with people who are beginning to come to uh, Gateway who are from uh, a Catholic background. And you, you are Catholic or you, are, you, you were Catholic at some point in your life. And you've had some questions about Gateway and what kind of church we are. You've made observations to me like, you know, really like what these guys do up here. I'm just not used to it. So, you know, can you explain? So I've had a lot of those conversations. I'm gonna, we're going to have one of those this morning, but at a very, very high level. In the late 1400s, a young man named Martin Luther was born in Germany. And Luther was a profoundly devout young man who eventually became a monk and a professor in uh, one of the leading universities in Germany. He was in the process of translating parts of the New Testament. He translated the book of Romans, and he translated Galatians, and he translated the book of Hebrews. He translated it from the original Greek, and he translated it into the European language, into German, and then he lectured on them at the local university. He was also in the process of lecturing through the Psalms when he discovered this terrible truth. He realized that he hated the righteousness of God. I'll explain in a second. But you need to know that Luther was a very devout member of the church. He committed his life completely to it. Luther had no desire to blow up the church. He had no desire to create us, by the way. He was not trying to create Protestantism. Luther was trying to reform the church. He was not the first to do so. And a reformation of the church was needed. In fact, after Luther, there was a counter-reformation within the Catholic church that, that addressed many of the ills of the Catholic church in the way that Luther was hoping it would happen. It just happened after Luther had been forced out of the church. So Luther is in the process of translating the book of Romans, and at the very beginning of it, he comes to this verse, and he's overwhelmed. He realizes he hates the righteousness of God, and let me explain why. Let's put this Luther long quotation up here. I want to walk you through what Martin Luther said so we can discover with Luther why really this might be the most important passage in the entire New Testament. Luther says this, Meanwhile, I had already during that year returned to interpret the Psalter anew. So he's now lecturing on the Psalms. I had confidence in the fact that I was more skillful now after I'd lectured in the university on St. Paul's epistles to the Romans, the Galatians, and the one to the Hebrews. I had indeed been captivated by an extraordinary ardor for understanding Paul in the epistle to the Romans. He wanted to know what Paul was talking about. But up till then, it was not the cold blood about the heart. The problem was not that I was just hard-hearted and cold, but it was a single word in chapter 1. Quote, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. That's what stood in my way. For I hated that word, the righteousness of God, which, according to the use and custom of teachers, I'd been taught to understand philosophically regarding the formal or active righteousness, as they call it, with which God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous sinner. Here's what Martin Luther understood when he read that phrase, the righteousness of God, and sometimes we do too. When Martin Luther read that phrase, the righteousness of God, he understood it as God's righteous character and God's standard. And he believed what God was telling him through the Apostle Paul is, you have to meet that standard. You have to be that good. You have to rise to that standard of behavior. Dr. Luther, it's all about how you behave. It's all about being good. 
It's all about being good enough so that you deserve God and God's attention. Luther goes on. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. In fact, Luther would later say, almost every day he visited his confessor. I could not believe that he was God, was placated by my satisfaction. I couldn't believe that I could satisfy God. I did not love. Yes, I hated the righteousness of God who punishes sinners and secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. And I said, as if indeed it's not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue without having God add pain to pain by the gospel and also by the gospel threatening us with the righteousness of God in wrath. In other words, it's bad enough that we're, we're born with original sin and then you lay on top of that the Ten Commandments and say, you've got to do all of that. And then on that beside, you, you give us the gospel which reveals the righteousness of God and that's yet more firmly establishing the standard of behavior that we've got to rise to. Luther said it was odious to him, the idea of the righteousness of God. Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Here is Luther, completely lost in his misunderstanding of the righteousness of God, and yet very nearly completely saved. Because this is almost the point to varying degrees that all of us have to come to of recognizing, what are you requiring of me, God? I give up! At which point he says, finally, thinking of righteousness as the standard of behavior that must be achieved, Luther grew to hate it. Here's what he says further. Nevertheless, I beat importunately upon Paul at that place. I kept going back to it. I kept examining it. What's going on? most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written, he through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning the righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness. It's not what we do, it's what he's done. The passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith, as it is written, he through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered into paradise itself through open gates. There a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. Thereupon I ran through the scripture from memory. I also found in, in other terms an analogy of this, as the work of God is that which God does in us, the power of God, that which he makes us wise, the strength of God, the salvation of God, the glory of God, all of these he began to see as God's gift to us and not God's expectation of us. And I extolled my sweetest word with a love as great as the hatred with which I had before hated that word, righteousness of God. Thus the place in Paul was for me truly the gate to paradise. Of course, what happened in Luther then began to reverberate throughout Europe and today in the far reaches of places like the United States of America and into churches like Gateway Community Church finish off the history, Luther began to write little tracts that he sent throughout Germany, and then they went throughout Europe. 
And various people began to read these tracts and began to realign themselves with the scriptural teaching of the righteousness of God. And, and their eyes were open and others would critically call them Lutherans. And then they began to go to their local priests and say, wait, why aren't we doing it this way? And they began to be known as Protestants or Protestants. And that's how we end up here today. Those of you who have always been part of a lowbrow, let's call it that, church-like gateway, you need to know that there is something that we miss a little bit of here. When I was in seminary, I went to seminary in the 1840s, and when I was in seminary, I went to an Episcopal church and was contemplating uh, the Episcopal priesthood. There were a couple of things about the theology of the Episcopal church that I couldn't subscribe to, but I loved the worship in the Episcopal Church, because I had grown up not with guitars and drums, but, you know, in a much more informal, hey, Jesus, culture in a Bible Belt church in the South. And I loved the, the awe and the reverence and the mystery that was created by silence and stillness and, and largeness and me coming down front and having a priest administer each week the cup and the wine. I've told you before, we don't do that here at Gateway, not because we don't want to do that. We haven't yet figured out how to use the gymnasium. We'll get there. But in our worship largely here at Gateway, there are some things that we do very well, but there are some things that we miss. And we miss a little bit of the awe and the reverence. Uh, those of you who come from liturgical backgrounds are shaking your heads and you're familiar with. We miss some of that here at Gateway. The, the awesome silence, the awesomeness of God you know, it's sometimes hard to create that when you're crashing drums and playing the guitar. There are things that we do well, but we miss that. But let me tell you the most important thing that I think we do well, that, that Protestants have done well over the, the centuries, which is one of the reasons that Gateway is not a Catholic church. My wife would be another one. One of the things that Protestant churches have historically done well is we ask people we ask of people, we ask of you, we together ask of one another that you make a decision, that you decide to be all in, that you take a step, that you say yes. It's not a family tradition. It's not something you were raised in. You need to say yes. You need to be in. You need to have Luther's moment of realization, holy smokes, you need to get it. Mind, heart, and then will say yes. I heard an illustration a number of years ago by a pastor who, I've never forgotten this. Some of you heard me use this before. This pastor liked to sail, and he and his wife had rented a yacht, and they had sailed into the Caribbean. I don't know where they were, but they pulled up to this spot in the Caribbean, and there were much larger yachts around him. And he had been invited to this party on one of these really giant yachts. So he and his wife decided they'd go to the party. So they go to this party. It's a you know, huge yacht. And people are milling about and having drinks and talking with one another. And it gets to be late. And, and he decides that he needs to leave. So they're about to leave. And well, I should, uh, at a certain point in the party, he said, I'm familiar with this moment. Somebody looked at him and said, hey, what do you do? And he said, you know, I pastor a church. And there's deathly silence all over the whole yacht. Nobody now knows what to say. I've been there before. But uh, later in the evening, he decides that it's time for him to leave. 
So they go over to the edge of the yacht, and I want you to get the picture because he realized he had very little time. They go to the edge of the yacht. His wife goes down the steps to get on their little dinghy to go over to their yacht. He's on the steps on the way down. And some guy comes over from the party, leans over on the rail, and he says, you said you're a minister. Yeah. Well, what's this Christian stuff all about? Why this Jesus business? And why do you believe that stuff? Well, of course, that's a $64,000 question. They could have talked all night. But he realized he's got about 30 seconds. He's on his way down into the boat himself. His wife's already there bobbing, waiting on him. He's got 30 seconds, and he said God gave him something that he's never forgotten. Mind-blowing. He looked back up at that guy, and he said, Listen, most people, when they think about religion, they think, they spell it D-O. They think of what we need to do. But for Jesus, religion is spelled D-O-N-E. It's done. It's what's been done for you. The righteousness of God is not some standard of behavior. God is not the behavior police. He's not checking how good you are. You, you and I can never be good enough. The righteousness of God is that attribute of God by which he makes everything right, including us. He makes us right. That's Christianity 101. And that's why this is such a critically important passage for one thing, it sets us free. Okay, if you're new to the things of the Spirit, if you've been coming to Gateway for a week or 10 or 25 and you're noodling around the edges, you need to know this morning that without apology, I'm asking you to say yes. You may have never done this in your life, but I'm, I'm not asking you to be religious. I'm asking you to step in. I'm asking you to say yes and to invest, to accept this gift, because it's being offered to you. This morning, I'm asking you to say, I get it. I believe it. I'm in. I don't care if you went to Baptist Sunday school for 49 years. I don't care if you were at either Catholic church or school your entire childhood. He is offering you a gift that you need to accept. You've got to be in. For those of us who have been around this for a long time, I have prayed that you and I would make this day a day that we would recommit. That we would recommit to allowing God to move in our lives in new ways. That we would recommit to accepting this gift Make this the day you begin a new year expecting God to take you somewhere new. Because that's his desire. His desire is that this year would be the year of all our best stories. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. And we're going to enclose with one of our songs. And choir, we're going to join them. We're going to sing like we mean it. If today is a day that you have said yes for the first time, then you can do that. During this song, while you're singing, you can say, I don't know that I've ever done this, but God, I want to accept what you've done for me in Jesus Christ. I want to say yes this morning. If you do that, I wish you would come tell me afterwards, or please go over here to the corner. We have some folks over there who will pray for you 
And they're going to be really excited if they hear this. So go tell them. And by the way, the rest of you, if you need prayer today, don't leave today without getting prayer. So I have prayed that today would be the day for someone. And I'm going to pray that now before we sing. So would you stand with me? Let's pray. Father, Son, Spirit, we welcome you. We know that you're here. You promised that you would be. And we believe that you have spoken. I pray that whatever you have said, you will protect in our hearts. Seal it. Make it real. And this morning, Lord, for those of us who are saying yes, when we get to Wednesday and we forget our yes, I pray that you'll remind us that today we said yes and we meant it. Lord, if there's anyone here who's saying yes to you for the first time, who is accepting the gift that you've given through Jesus Christ, then we rejoice. We remember, Lord, the day that we said yes and the way the whole world opened up. I pray it would be the same here, now. Hear us, Lord, every heart, no matter where we are. We came in here with a lot of different kind of stuff, so hear us now and speak. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Pete, pull up those lyrics. Great is your faithfulness, O God. You wrestle with the sinner's heart. Okay, I'm guessing that the overwhelming majority of you have had that experience of having God wrestle with your heart. For some of you, maybe this morning. You lead us by still waters and to mercy, and nothing can keep us apart. Choir, let's sing this together. Your grace is enough.
let's stand. We'll pray, and then you guys will all be dismissed. So let's stand as we pray. Lord, you're so good to us. You're great. Your, your love for us is huge. We are in awe of everything you've done for us, the desire that you have for us to be reconnected to you, Lord. I just pray that we can, this week, be able to be the vessels, Lord, that you call us to be so that those who are around us will not only be able to see you, Lord, but be able to experience your love. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a great week.